Welcome to the CA Agenda podcast brought to you by ICAS. The more perceptive members of the audience will by now have realised that I'm not your usual host, Indy Hoti. We will, however, be joined by Indy very shortly. I'm ICAS Deputy President Bruce Pritchard, and I'll be your guest host for this episode, where I'm joined by my office bearer colleague, ICAS Vice President, and your usual podcast host, Indy Hoti. Indy is currently the co-founder of Upside Projects, a consultancy and venture builder which provides strategic advice on digital transformation, innovation and sustainability to public and private sector clients. Prior to Upside Projects, Indy was a senior economist with EY in London. He worked across a number of high-profile economic impact studies which influenced public policy and included clients such as the Premier League and Rugby World Cup. Through his passion for social and humanitarian causes, Indy was a trustee of Calsa Aid International, a charity which provides humanitarian aid in disaster areas and civil conflict zones. His work has led him to the front line in a number of projects in Iraq, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Lebanon, Nepal and Haiti. Indy was recognised as one young CA in 2015 and joined ICAS Council in 2016, representing the England and Wales area and supporting engagement with members under 35 and with the broader London community through the work of the London Area Network. Indy, it's a real pleasure to have you with us here today. And perhaps we can dive straight in right at the beginning. What was it that first attracted you to the accountancy profession and specifically to the CA qualification? Hi, Bruce. I'm absolutely delighted to be here with you today. It's definitely an interesting experience being on the other side of this podcast as a guest, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation ahead. So I guess starting off with what attracted me to the profession and the the qualification itself, I think going back over a decade when I was um, studying uh, economics at university during the Great Recession, my, my parents were from a working class background and I was the first individual in my family to be attending university. And I was very quickly thinking about my prospects for the for the future, especially with the backdrop of, of the, the economic climate at, at the time. And I wanted to make sure I had a strong foundation um, for my career going going forward. And then I was and as I was looking at the sort of business and corporate landscape, I very quickly recognized that the majority of CEOs of business leaders actually had an accountancy qualification or some form of accountancy background and training. So I really I recognized quite early on that that was the common denominator and that really focused, you know, my efforts in terms of applying for internships, etc. And I was very, very fortunate enough to gain exposure in the M&A space, investments and tax. And that's what really then drew me to wanting to um, pursue a career in this industry, specifically in, in the finance and actually gaining the CA qualification. And I personally saw it as a very strong foundation and springboard for a fulfilling and varied career. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, you, you know, you've just spoken about that springboard. One thing that you've been uh, very good at is using the leverage that your career has provided with uh, you with to speak quite openly uh, on a number of topics uh, in social media. Um, you've been quite open um, on the topics of diversity and inclusion in business and society in general. Um, in the past, 12 months or so, these issues have have really been put under the spotlight following the death of George Floyd in the US. 
How have you seen the business landscape react to this and, and what more do you think needs to be done to improve ED&I in the workplace? An extremely important topic and for myself especially one of the defining events of, of 2020 in, in many respects. And as we saw the shocking scenes unfold in the, in the video of what happened to George Floyd um, circulate around the world, sadly, this wasn't a new sight for many from minority backgrounds. And I feel like it really shone a light on the black experience, um, which, which the global community got to see and got to witness the systemic racism that the black community has been facing for, for a significant period of time. And now as the Black Lives Matter movement gained traction and gained a voice, the response was overwhelming for many parts of, of society that are looking to address this systemic racism from local communities, local government, national government, um, to business leaders and businesses as well. And we know that businesses and business leaders have been discussing the topic of diversity and inclusion for a number of years now and they've and there's lots of academic research and practical case studies that recognize in many ways it's the right thing to do that diversity really fosters innovation improves retention you exit the echo chamber it has many many business benefits and quite frankly it's the it's the right thing to do as well in, in the sense that your employees and your workforce can bring their whole whole selves um, to work and don't feel that they are have been discriminated against in any any way shape or form we, we also saw a number of businesses speak up very openly very quickly on this on this topic um, without actually necessarily digging deep into their culture ways of working, considering their products or services, their leadership um, uh, profile, their investment in terms of black and minority communities. And and that back backfired for them in some respects. So it really shone a light, uh, I believe, for business leaders to, to stake stock first in terms of what's been un unfolding to educate themselves. And I think a lot of organisations and business leaders learnt that lesson that um, it's probably not the right thing to do to speak out so openly and quickly without really understanding whether their organization or business or their own personal ways of working is actually um, supporting this issue or, 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 or actually in, um, creating an environment of systemic racism, whether knowingly or not. And in terms of what needs to be done to so tackling the second half of your question there, to give you some context and history, I've, I've been actively involved in the EDNI space um, since the beginning of my my career. And this is something that I've been championing, supporting and working on um, off, on the side of my desk in, in, in many respects. It's not been part of the formal day role. Um, the journey really, really started when I when I joined um, EY and quickly realized that the the profile of graduates around me wasn't necessarily the same as me, and I had I had really struggled in terms of being able to understand the process of even applying for a role or how to get into the industry, and then also understanding the different types of roles and and functions within the professional services and and, and accounting industry, and uh, very quickly realized that. If I face those challenges and issues, then there would be other graduates who would also have those significant issues. And it really came down to a, a topic of the lack of sort of social capital and the social networks. I didn't have that network around me to, to guide me and provide that support. So I, 
I looked to work with with our recruitment team at EY at the time to deliver a number of graduate recruitment sessions specifically target, targeting um, um, societies and, and groups from minority backgrounds within universities that the the firm wouldn't traditionally target as well to make sure that we had that breadth and diversity of of, of candidates um, understanding the industry and being confident enough to apply for those roles. Over time, that that, that grew, and and I I started to lead a a DNI um, network, uh, one of the faith networks within within EY, tackling that stigma and taboo as well um, around faith within within the workplace, um, which was quite a uh, quite a challenging one as faith can be a very personal and emotive topic um, for a lot of people. But over that five year period, that that network actually surprisingly grew to be one of the largest DNI um, networks within within the firm, and it opened its doors to external stakeholders to attend and get involved with some of the programs and initiatives um, that we were were running. and And it was composed of a mixture of education, arts, and and academia as well. So. That, that grew from strength to strength and and as I as m- my journey progressed in this area started to advise a number of external stakeholders so working with the mayor of London as a cultural advisor and also advising uh, EY and its broader practices in other parts of, of the world around the context of DNI in the UK for example so it really grew in terms of more of an advisory piece and so I say that because I've, I've, I feel like I've, I've, I've seen the corporate world, on on this journey around understanding e e d and i and there definitely is more to be done i'd hope to see a world where we don't necessarily need a dni function that's when you know that we we're, we're truly successful uh, at this right so for me really the first piece is around education to to really tackle this you've got to understand and recognize and this issue and not just in a silo in terms of business leaders recognizing it, but everyone within an organization and our society recognizing why this could be an issue and why certain groups are uh, where may face these systemic um, issues that and, and roadblocks are against them. So it's, it's, a, it's a very, very broad umbrella. And I think it takes time to really understand all of these issues. Some people may have a better understanding of one or two of them, but require education on the whole spectrum. So I think the first, first and foremost is the most important is education. There's then an aspect of planning, because it can be quite easy for the EDNI topic being being a, a, an aspect that the HR function manages, or it can be a, a quite quickly or quite easily fall into it being a a legal thing that is required. For example, if if some certain quotas need to be met, but you're not actually living what EDNI truly means. So I really really feel that when you're looking at planning, EDNI needs to be a core aspect of business strategy. And then finally, there's that implementation. There's actively living and embedding these values. Once you understand the topic, once you've once you've once you've um, looked at how you can change your own business and the ways of working, then it then it really comes down to the hard piece of actively living and embedding those values of openness, collaboration, and, and and to create an environment where everyone feels welcome. I guess one way to summarize it for me, and it's quite a quite a simple but very powerful quote, is that if we think of diversity as being invited to a party, then inclusion is being asked to dance when you get there. And that's the most important piece, the inclusion, inclusion piece for me. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, really kind of highlights some, um, you know, the, the, the Institute motto, the power of one and uh, what you've been able to achieve, you know, from your from your platform. Uh, as you say, this is something that we all have a responsibility to actively engage in and actively be part of. It's, it's about adopting the uh, the spirit, not just the, the, the rules of the, the process. So absolutely. Um, maybe if we could shift on a little bit now, as a as a fellow office bearer, I know that you are very close to the work that ICAST does to serve its members. Um, what have been some of your key focuses for the institute during your time as vice president? Sure, um, I'm I'm definitely a very very proud and passionate member of ICAST. I've I've seen ICAST um, as an organisation that. Uh, and member body that has stayed that will stay with me throughout my career as a as a CA and historically I've been involved with ICAS at council so informing um, you know the overall the overall workings of the organization I guess to a certain degree at that at that level but as a younger member and providing my my point of view of, of, of my my experiences I guess more recently there's been quite a few initiatives that I've been involved with the first one is is this very podcast, the CA Agenda podcast. And I think that was an opportunity for our members to connect with each other in a digital environment. Uh, the podcast was launched um, in March 2020 um, in, in, the, in the context and background of the sort of global pandemic. So in an environment where face-to-face -face interactions were very quickly um, stopped, um, I was very, very, very fortunate to see that, you know, we launched the podcast at a time when uh, our members weren't able to connect on a face-to-face -face basis. And we were able to share insights from different members um, and, and to share their experiences. So we've had a fantastic lineup of speakers so far from, you know, the you know, Alison Cornwell, the FD of View Cinemas, to Johnny Jacobs, who's the finance director of Starbucks. And we've been able to talk about a number of different topics as well. So whilst we've gone down the technical route of understanding an industry and sectoral insights from these individuals. We've also been able to understand their, their personal journeys and also being able to talk about some quite challenging topics that aren't always talked about openly, such as mental health or even the challenges of progressing your career journey and, you know, some of the things that we all face, such as imposter syndrome. So that's been really, really wonderful to be involved with. And we've obviously seen the podcast grow from strength to strength. There's also the piece around uh, the regional focus of so being involved with the London Area Network as a, as, a, as a member who's based in London myself, making sure we support the engagement and growth of, of that local community, making sure we serve our members uh, appropriately. And then around the EDNI space. So as I've sort of talked about some of my work earlier, that's also included um, included within, within ICAS being on council. And I personally see that as you know an opportunity for me to share my experiences primarily to inform my colleagues and those around me so that the Institute can ultimately better serve its members and, and play its part in creating equality within within the profession. And I know many, many uh, great um, um, colleagues have been involved in that space in terms of setting up the EDNI group to to really to really move the, the, the needle forward, so to speak, within our industry. And Bruce Cartwright, our CEO, who's shared some of his thoughts in his blog posts on this topic as well. And then finally, it's around the global voice as well. So recently being involved with Chartered Accountants Worldwide and hosting the launch of their FinBiz 2030 task force. 
whose aim has been to connect finance professionals and the business communities towards achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So earlier this year, well, sorry, uh, at the back end of 2020, actually, um, I was fortunate enough to be able to launch the Scottish chapter where we discussed leadership and resiliency. And I think that's a great opportunity for ICAS to be represented and have a voice in this global arena, which is ultimately tackling some of the most pressing issues affecting our global society and generation. So that's a quick quick summary of some of the initiatives we've been involved with over the over the last twelve months. Yeah, that's that's excellent, and uh, you know it really has been a, a whirlwind. And uh, you know who would have thought that one of the unintended upsides of of a global pandemic was uh, forcing us to become more online, more virtual, and hopefully then able to reach more of our members uh, in this virtual world. So uh, credit to you for everything that you've done for ICAS and and helping us get there. So I mentioned in the intro that you were named One Young CA in 2015, which saw you represent ICAS at the One Young World Summit in Bangkok. In an article you contributed as part of the summit, you spoke about ways people can help make a difference through social activism, both globally and in their local community. Where does your passion for humanitarian work come from? So I guess for me, growing up in a Sikh household, I I practiced the the Sikh faith and a core tenant of the faith is a concept known as seva, which is selfless serving, selfless service, sorry. So serving those around you. And growing up in the in the local area, and I remember quite vividly the the in nineteen ninety nine actually the formation of the charity which I still work with now, Carlsa Aid, which was started to to support and celebrate um, the three hundredth anniversary of the Khalsa, so the three hundredth anniversary, I guess, of the Sikh faith in, th- in certain respects. But to commemorate that, the an initiative was launched to to support refugees in Kosovo at the time. So I guess, you know, I was always around that environment um, um, of of activism and social activism and humanitarian aid work. And fast forward um, a decade or so, I I spent some time living in Thailand competing in Muay Thai. So it feels like a a lifetime ago, a very different lifetime ago as well. But I was living with a local community there, a local family who owned the gym. And I, I guess, that's the first real life experience for me of seeing a different lifestyle, um, having grown up in, you know, West London in the UK, then moving to, you know, rural location in, in Thailand, competing in, a, in, in, in Muay Thai there. And for me, that made inequality something that was a, a term that I'd studied you know, quite often in, in terms of academia and economics, but it made it a very real thing for me. I got to experience what the inequality looked like. And I think for me, I personally said from that moment on and from that experience that I'd always strive to do something for for, for others where I could and, and use my skills where I could. And so as I as I progressed my career and spending some time at EY, and uh, I was fortunate enough, obviously, to undertake the CA qualification, I, I had the opportunity to work for a number of charities in a, in a more of a consulting type, type of role, supporting them in measuring social impact. And then I very quickly got involved with a group of consultants who started to provide pro bono support to charities. 
And so that really involved using my skills that I had learned and developed over time to provide you know, charities with that pro bono consulting support. And that's where it really evolved and grew from providing that support on the sort of back end, so to speak, in terms of strategy, finance and operations, to also getting involved on the field, seeing how it is firsthand in terms of some of these disasters or, or crises that um, communities are, are faced with and how to appropriately provide support. So that led me to a number of different locations around the world to either support as a volunteer or to even coordinate projects. And that's where really that 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 spark has come from. And I and I hope that going forward for the rest of my career that I continue to do that. And I'm a big advocate for people to get involved um, with these uh, with social issues or, or, or charitable projects, whether it's locally or globally, because there's never there's never a time. Right. You know, you, you hear the, the common the common messaging sometimes that is something you do once you're established in your career and and you're you know successful whether that's you know professionally socially whatever have you but I always challenge that to say it's something that you can do from the get-go no matter how small there's always something that you can you can get involved with to to ultimately make make a world a better place now you've just mentioned in in that response uh, the fact that your humanitarian work has taken you um, to some quite volatile places like Syria and Iraq and, and, and the, the DRC. Uh, what kind of preparation do you need to go through for a trip like that? Okay, there's, there's, so there's a, there's a lot of pre- preparation involved. So I guess if I look at some of the external, more formal factors, you know, we're we're working in environments that are affected by war, civil conflict. Um, or, or natural disasters. So I guess on the more formal side, I've, I've been on trips with, with former military personnel. So that's sort of on the ground training, so to speak. Um, I've, I've also had uh, undertaken some hostile environment training, um, which, uh, which gives you the formal, you know, formal awareness of, 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 of working in those environments and what you need to look out for. So all the way from, you know, having, um, you know, being prepared for emergency scenarios to how to identify an, an IED, so an improvised explosive device. So that was quite an eye-opening um, piece of training that I went on. Um, and then I guess more broader as well, um, the facts of the fact around, you know, you know, having been traveled to a number of these locations previously just um as a as a as a as an individual and some of the work that I'd, i had done in a in a previous like uh, life as i said before having professionally competed in muay thai obviously gives me that personal confidence that i can that i can handle myself but i guess so that's the that's the more the the formal side of things but i guess actually what i found after working on the field for quite some time now that the most important piece really to be an effective humanitarian aid worker or organization is really around some of the softer skills. So number one is around effective engagement with communities. Number two is really understanding the the, the needs of um, local communities, being empathetic and understanding cultural sensitivities. And then the third is actually more the technical skills around how do you coordinate or procure supplies in an area which shaky supply chains? How do you, you know, uh, very quickly forge relationships with stakeholders, whether that's local communities, governments, or agencies. And so I very quickly realized there's a blend of soft and technical skills um, that are required. And actually, some of those external factors are just, you know, formalities in terms of experience that are, are very important and required. But to be, 
to be a truly great aid organization, I feel like it's all about the soft skills in terms of engaging with communities. And so for me, one way that I would summarize that for myself and for for those around me when I when I talk about this topic, it's really about seeing the country and the people for what and who they are and not defining them by what crises they're in. Especially when you think about when you mentioned sort of countries such as, you know, Congo, Haiti or Iraq, Syria, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, conflict or, um, you know, danger. But actually just seeing the country and the people for who they are and and, and what they what they've um, experienced is probably the most important thing I've learned and the most important thing to prepare for um, as a humanitarian aid professional. So that that point on empathy that you've just finished on there is um, you know something that maybe could focus on now. Um, over the past twelve months, you know we've all been living in this um, COVID environment, um, and I, I think you know now more than ever, it's clear that the need for kindness, forgiving, uh, has you know, being brought to the fore and um, to the attention of the, the population at large. Um, you've been involved in charity work in the UK during the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What, what's motivated you to get involved in that charitable work? And can you give any advice for our listeners who might want to help others during this time? Sure. Um so I was very fortunate, obviously, as as an individual who's running um, my own consultancy practice with a with a team of of, of, of colleagues uh, around me. Um, we were approached by um, Calsa Aid um, in terms of needing support on on their transformation program that they were embarking on and undertaking um, just shortly after the the, the COVID um, pandemic. So I had the opportunity to work with the charity um, in a more of an operations transformation role to to look at their their finance function. So I've spent quite a bit of time supporting that charity in terms of this transformation journey around how it, how it reports and its um, impact reporting metrics and then how it engages with its, with its stakeholders. So that's been a very rewarding journey to to work with a what I would call a smaller smaller charitable organization and and, and to provide that 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 consulting consulting support during that time. What that's all also meant is being being able to support some of the frontline operations during this time. So whilst this charity has been on a transformation journey, its its aid operations haven't haven't stopped at all. So we find ourselves in have we have found ourselves in this environment with with COVID nineteen, which has brought brought around so many challenges for 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 individuals in the UK and for global society as a whole. And so very quickly, the, the, the charity and its volunteers were mobilized to provide meals and, 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 and food packs to vulnerable communities. Um, so that was very, very quickly um, established and started to run with a number of local, local uh, councils and local authorities. I think by the end of, of, of 2020, over six to 7,000 meals were, were, were distributed specifically in relation to, to COVID-19 and supporting vulnerable communities there. And then also, you know, bringing that, bringing that back to more recent times as well, over, over the Christmas period at the end of 2020, we saw a lot of our volunteers and our, our CEO on the front line supporting the, the truckers on the M20 who were, who were stranded over Christmas Eve and, and, and the Christmas period to provide essential food supplies. And we 
you're working with uh, the local authorities, the highways agencies, etc., to to support that. And then internationally, at the same time, the charity has been doing some fantastic work in in, for example, in Iraq, supporting the Yazidi communities in in, in refugee camps where they're where they're currently staying in the settlement camps, and. As you as you can probably imagine and understand the 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 recording of data and information in terms of COVID cases etc. There is very very limited to non-existent, and so rec- we very quickly recognise more than ever before our support there would be required would be required sorry, and we made sure that um, food provisions and any other kind of medical support that was uh, required was provided to those individuals. So there's been a lot of projects that have been either started or kicked off as a result of, of COVID-19 in terms of providing support to individuals. And then also personally for myself, being able to support the charity, I guess, on the back end in terms of its finance and operations to help facilitate an increased scale um, going forward in the long term in terms of the work that, that it can do. And then to answer the second part of your question in terms of advice to lis- listeners who want to help during this time, and I know, I know, I can imagine for a lot of people when you're reading the news and and hearing about what's going on and the challenges people are facing, I guess we all as human beings want to do our bit to help, right? And I've always said to people to really think about what skills they have, the time that they commit can commit and and to support accordingly so that could you know that could start from saying well i want to donate to a local charity or community group that is providing you know work on the ground all the way to wanting to to volunteer to provide your 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 your, your time as well one thing i would say in the context of the listeners here who are likely to be you know you know, CA members as well, is that we have a, you know, we have a very, very strong skill set and, and a skill set that is always in need. So if you look at, you know, job vacancies for, you know, charities in terms of leadership positions, um, it's quite often they are asking for some of these pro- professional qualifications and quite common it's it, they're, they're looking for those individuals with a with a finance or accountancy background. So there's a real opportunity there for, for CAs to, to use their skills um, um, to support um, charitable organisations or endeavours, even though, you know, the work that they're doing, they may not feel like, you know, I'm doing something on the ground or providing aid there and then. I always, I always challenge those individuals to say, well, actually, the work you're doing can provide far greater long-term benefit to these organisations because it allows them to serve more communities, to improve the transparency of their reporting and, and, and operations. And there's some wonderful organisations that you know link up um, professionals, such as accountants, with charities who, who require that support. And we'll no doubt provide links to some of those organisations in the notes of this of this podcast. But it's definitely about using your skills and there's a spectrum there as well in terms of you know your time so whether it can be providing financial support all the way up to you know volunteering and providing providing your time well Andy, it's, it's clear you're a true kind of inspiration i mean not only are you uh, an exemplar of your your own faith but also of how as a professional you can leverage your skills to to benefit others and it's it's been inspiring to hear what you've been up to to help others during uh, the past few months um but maybe just before we wrap up um you know how have you been kind of coping yourself during covid what have, what's been helping you through lockdown and I th- thank you for those kind words bruce as i said it's always you know trying trying to do my bit to be a to be a better person and and, and human being and and um, acting in the way that you know 
to, to be the change that I want to see in the world, right? As, as cliche as that sounds. Um, but in terms of coping with with the, with the last 12 months and during this during this pandemic, it's been a tough period, especially for myself as well. Um, and there's been a few interesting things I've been involved with just to support my mental well-being. So I guess the first one I have to mention is actually gardening, because as a as a young, I guess, 30 year old male, I didn't I didn't. I, if someone said to me in India a few years ago that you're you're going to be really into gardening and growing vegetables, I would have probably scoffed at that statement. But I'm I'm, I'm I've 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 been turned. Let's put it that way. Um, so I we very quickly after the first lockdown decided that I'd like to get involved in gardening and. Part of it was um, spending time outdoors. The other aspect was connecting to my ancestral heritage as my my family have a line of sort of farmers being from a farming background and also just a connection to the food that's grown, right? So um, learn how to grow um, some base, the basic vegetables, potatoes, carrots, um, had some chilies as well. So that was a fantastic experience, m- provided a routine for me in terms of getting getting outdoors in the morning to water the plants and maintain them. Um, the second thing for me was around um, gym as well, going to the gym. So um, as a result of the lo- first lockdown, very, very quickly um, uh, got my, got myself sorted with some home gym equipment, which allowed me again to just have that element of physical activity. As someone who's always been involved in sports, both at a sort of you know casual and also um, competitive level, it was something that I was keen to continue doing just to maintain my, my well-being and also physical physical fitness. Uh, and then finally um, was uh, my our family dog, Hida, uh, who is a, a 60 kilogram Presa Canario, so a very, very large Spanish Mastiff. He's the first dog in our family, and I think he was around um, uh, 11 months when uh, the first lockdown had, had, had started. And so without really realizing, he became a really big support element to the entire, entire family, to my wife and, and to my parents in terms of just um, having that, you know, canine companion and, and being able to go for long walks and, and, and spend time spend time outdoors. So as you can see, the, the three the three sort of things there, very, very outdoorsy, very, very active, but really helped to support my well-being and mood. And then finally, the the last piece has really supported me throughout this, and it's been a surprise one for me, has been around journaling. So taking the time, whether it's daily or or weekly, um, to write in a journal um, and to be quite reflective over my experiences and and, and how I'm feeling, which, um, again, if if you had asked Indy, say, five years ago that, you know, you should try journaling, I would have uh, maybe maybe dismissed it, to be very honest with you. But it's something that I found to be very, very powerful. It helps you to really distill your thoughts and reflect on experiences that you've you've gone through to help really define and 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 be clear on uh, what I want to do going forward as well. So those are those are the four things that I've been doing to, and that have really really helped me. So gardening, gym, um, walking my dog, and also journaling. Yeah, brilliant. Well, I, I've had the pleasure of seeing some of the photographs, uh, the fruits of your labor on the uh, on the gardening front and, uh, and and the pictures of the giant dog. So uh, I can see that you've certainly had your hands full um, over the, the lockdown period. And, and with that, it's appropriate maybe to wrap up by saying uh, a big thank you to you for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, participate in the podcast today. It's been a, a pleasure for me to turn the tables on you uh, and, and, and put you in the hot seat over the questioning. I hope you've enjoyed sitting on the other side of the microphone for this uh, for this podcast. 
Um, maybe uh, just to, to finish up, Indy, if, if any of our listeners today uh, would like to get in touch with you um, to talk through any of the issues that you've raised today or, or indeed to be put in touch with any of the, uh, the links that you've suggested uh, in terms of helping out with charities and so on, uh, how can they get in touch with you? No, thank you, Bruce. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really, I really enjoyed the conversation. And as you said, um, you know, it's, uh, being on the other side of the podcast has been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And thank you for taking the time to host the podcast and taking the time out of out of your day to do that. Um, in terms of being able to connect with me, yes, you. If any members or anyone listening to this podcast uh, would like to connect with me, you can you can email me at ihoti at icas dot com, and you can also connect with me on social, so at indiehoti on 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 Twitter, um, Instagram, and LinkedIn um, as well. More than happy to talk through anything that we've discussed on on this podcast, from uh, my career DNI to the work that ICAS is doing, and even if you wanted any gardening advice, um, you know it's been my first season, but more than happy to do that as well. Uh, so thanks again, Bruce, for the time. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, being on the podcast with you today. Great. Well, thanks, Indy. So I think all that remains now is to uh, to thank our listeners for uh, tuning into the podcast today. Uh, thank you to our guest, Indy Hote. Uh, I've been Bruce Pritchard, the ICAST Deputy President, and uh, thank you for tuning in.